here on episode number 43 of the Path to Follow podcast with one of my good friends, Noah Knopf. Noah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast virtually. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, great pronunciation of the last name. Usually people get it wrong. <laughs> well, I call it's funny. I call you Knopfer all the time, but it's Noah Knopf. And yeah. Noah, if you could maybe just introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you coming from? And what, what do you do now? Sure. So uh, I'm Noah. Um, I'm currently a Penn Fellow teaching history at Milton Academy up in Massachusetts. Um, grew up in New York City. Uh, went to college with you, Jake. And um, I'm joining from my apartment here in Milton. Awesome. What has your experience as a first-year teacher been like at Milton and part of the Penn Fellowship, the similar experience I had, you're just in the boarding school cohort. Um, what what has that been like, especially during such a crazy time with COVID and teaching virtually and hybrid model? How has that worked out for you this first year? I mean, honestly, I'm loving it. Um, a lot of the time people ask and they have almost like a sympathetic tone in their voice as if it must be such a tough year in many respects it is and um i know a lot of people are having a hard year um and there are obviously things that i would change uh you know if i could about this first year but i've really enjoyed it the kids that i work with are fantastic uh, my colleagues at milton are awesome and i learn a lot from them every day um so i'm i'm really enjoying it you know we i remember we talked earlier in the fall and you said that teaching is like going to your favorite class every day um, and working with kids to help them, uh, you know, develop skills and also just on whatever journey that they're on in terms of appreciating the material and figuring out who it is they want to be. And yeah, I think it's an awesome profession. So what, what made you want to become a teacher? Where'd that start? Did that start in, in high school? Did you develop that more in college or when did that idea to become a teacher and a coach start out for you? Yeah, I always really loved school but I hadn't thought um, necessarily about becoming a teacher. You know, I kind of was just playing things by ear a little bit in the way that uh, maybe kids do. Uh, I decided to study history and literature in college because uh, those were the things that I really appreciated and really loved. Um, and the summer after my sophomore year, um, I was looking for jobs, didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I wanted to be a political speechwriter, so I was looking at jobs in, in speech writing and communications, um, and that didn't work out. And I ended up getting a job at the East Harlem School in New York, um, teaching as an intern in their summer session, uh, and I just loved it. You know, I loved working with the kids. Um, I loved being able to share my appreciation for, you know, history and literature and the humanities with them, and for sports as well, and based on that, I was like, I have to keep going with this. I have to keep exploring. So I went to Loomis Chafee the following summer and worked in their summer program. Uh, loved that as well. Decided to uh, apply to full-time job as a teacher. Awesome. And how about this Penn Fellowship program that you're part of? I, I went through it as well, but what what has your experience been like in the Penn Fellowship program now and maybe what are you learning in that program that you're taking uh, and applying to your classes? I mean, I've loved the pen part of the fellowship. At first I was, you know, I didn't know what it was. Um, so I wasn't sure how much I would like it, uh, but I found it to be extremely helpful 
uh, a lot of the readings that we do, the papers we write, have really helped me reimagine what good teaching can be. And I would say that based on um, like the Penn program, my vision for what good teaching can be has totally changed. At the beginning of the year, I think I thought it was, let me bring in you know, material that I think is really fascinating and that can potentially you know, influence the way kids see the world and that they'll enjoy. Uh, and we'll help them on, you know, whatever journey it is they're on. Um, and we'll discuss it and they'll write papers about it. And that's sort of my job is to like be the be the, be the guide in that sense. Um, and I think now my vision has changed a lot. I think um, one thing that's different is the role that I think student voice should play in the classroom, you know, rather than me deciding what it is we're going to study in what order, you know, how we're going to look at it. Um, you know, my vision, and I haven't been able to fully implement it yet, you know, it, it's a long-term process, but uh, I think now it's, you know, the students should be the ones having a formal voice in determining the overarching direction and inquiry of the class. Um, so how to actually make that happen, how to guide them and scaffold them uh, as they as they have that voice is something that I'm thinking about more and more. Now, did you get to choose your own curriculum during your first year at Milton or did someone hand you that curriculum? Do you have a mentor there? What's what's that process been like? Because I know coming in my first year teaching at Gilman, I was lucky enough to have a mentor who I would observe him, Brian Ledyard. I would watch his classes and I would follow his same curriculum and then go teach my class. Is it similar there for you or is it a different setup? It's a little different. Um, the, I was not handed a syllabus of any kind. I was just told, teach U.S. history. Um, and I have a mentor who's fantastic, Catherine Millett, and she teaches in the history department, but this year she's doing modern world and ancient civilizations. So two different, totally different classes with a different syllabus. I think the main thing that, has take, that, that I spend most of my time on is thinking about what we're actually going to read and study. Um, so I've had you know full autonomy in doing that, and that's that's been something I've valued a lot because it allows us to cover you know things that I think are really interesting, and also to try and you know get up to parts in U.S. history that I am really fascinated by that happened more recently. You know, I remember my own U.S. history course when I was in high school. I think we only got up to maybe World War II, um, and I didn't know anything about the Vietnam War. I only knew a very superficial amount about the civil rights movement. And there have been so many things that have happened in U.S. history since those things as well, uh, which I think are really relevant to understanding the U.S. today. So, uh, you know, my goal was to try and get to those things. Um, and I think that we'll be able to a little bit more, uh, you know, in the last couple months of school. Um, and then the other the other main goal that I really had was to try and decenter whiteness in the curriculum and bring in as many voices of historically marginalized people as possible. Um, so having autonomy in that sense was great because I didn't have to ask anyone to cut the War of 1812. You know, we just didn't do that. And instead, you know, we read more from Frederick Douglass um, and from other, you know, figures throughout history. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's the best part, in my opinion, too, of teaching at some of these independent schools. You get more autonomy in the classroom. You get to figure out what you're passionate about, what you want to teach in the classroom. And arrange it in that way you have a lot of freedom as a teacher which i know a lot of you know public schools especially it's hard to have that same sense of freedom that i think we we get more so at independent schools um, yeah 
can you can you take me through a little bit um, of your maybe high school experience at Fieldston and and growing up and really deciding that you wanted to become a teacher and get into education? Were there specific teachers and coaches that you had growing up who played a huge influence in your life and had a large effect on what you would end up getting into after college or uh, was it really just yeah. intrinsic motivation to become a teacher and are you just following kind of your own, um, your own journey there? No, I think that there were definitely a lot of teachers at, at, at Fieldston who influenced me in ways that I probably didn't even understand at the time. Um, it's funny for me to like think back to high school because um, I feel like a lot of disconnect between who I was in high school and who I am now. Um, but there were many teachers at Fieldston, uh, for example, who were queer. Um, and at the time, you know, I was a typical teenage boy lacrosse player. Um, and I don't think that, you know, I understood who I was yet really, and didn't understand the value and importance that those teachers had just in their, in their fact of existing, you know, growing up, um, I think in the world of sports, especially, you know, being gay is just something that is equated with like being bad in some way or less than. Uh, it's the last thing that you want to be in a world where everyone you know uses homophobic slurs all the time, et cetera. So just like the fact that queer teachers existed and lived their lives openly at Fieldston, even though I don't think I appreciated it at the time as much as I should have, um, had a huge subliminal impact on me in terms of just showing that that was possible. And I think that you know implicitly that was something that drew me to teaching. And it really was like when I started my career as a teacher, that something just clicked in my head and I thought, wow, like this is possible. I could, I could potentially be out and openly gay. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that those two things went hand in hand. Right. It was really like at the summer when I was at Loomis that I, that I started to actually think that it was a possibility. Um, and I think that that is definitely, uh, due to, you know, having, um, you know, gay role models to an extent or, or just an understanding that it was possible. Um, so thank you to all of your teachers at Fieldston for existing, um, even if even if uh, you know we might not have known each other so well um, in high school. That's pretty. That's pretty awesome and pretty interesting. That uh, in your uh, lacrosse magazine article, and maybe we can t talk sure. about that a little bit. Um, that came out what last year or this fall? This past yeah, fall? I think it was this fall. It feels like forever ago. Time and COVID is just like a tunnel. Yeah, it's a time warp, but. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about the motivation to write that article and uh, your experience coming out at Harvard during your senior year um, for people who don't know about that story. Um, since we talked about some of your role models or people who played a role in your life in high school and, and their impact, maybe we could talk about um, the article you wrote and why did you decide to, to write it? Yeah. Um, I think that like, even as I was thinking about coming out, the idea of being a role model was something that was like already in my head, particularly in the space of lacrosse and athletics, because it feels to me like that space is still one of the final frontiers where, you know, explicit homophobia in many instances is still a huge part of the culture. Uh, like if you look at the world of lacrosse, there's almost no one on the men's side 
um, who's out or openly gay, uh, despite the likely reality that there are many people um, in that sport who are, um, you know, queer in some way. Um, so, so yeah, as I was coming out, I was kind of thinking in the back of my head, like, you know, I would love to try and, you know, be a role model so that the next generation of kids, you know, has it better than I had it. And, and, and that, uh, and then, and then many others have had it. Uh, and I think that that's also something that's just part of being part of the LGBT community in general, um, is like this understanding that the world as it is today is not how it always has been. In fact, the world up until extremely very recently has been an incredibly hostile place to LGBTQ people. And it's only because of the work um, that so many you know, people who, who came before us have put in and the sacrifices they made um, and, and the visibility that they have created uh, that the world today is like how it is. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to be part of that. And um, I also love to write <laughs> and I was sitting around during COVID um, and the opportunity kind of presented itself. And I thought that it would be really good. It was good for me as well to just reflect on things a little bit and, and put it in writing. It was cathartic in some ways. Um, and the goal, you know, was just, uh, you know, I, I was trying to imagine myself back in high school and what reading, you know, what seeing like an out gay college player would have meant to me, um, and how I could sort of phrase the article or write the article in a way, uh, that would, that would mean something to a young queer kid who doesn't see people like him or her or them out there. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, that was sort of the goal. And the goal also was to say a little bit to the lacrosse community, like we have a little bit of a problem on our hands here, uh, in terms of the homophobia that's still so present, um, in most locker rooms in our sport. Um, and I don't think that ignoring that is a way of solving that problem. You know, I think it's gotta be named. Yeah. What do you think contributes to, you say the homophobia in the sport of lacrosse or in, you know, on different teams, what do you think the factors are or the obstacles are that like make that, um, make that ha happen so often in the sport of lacrosse? Maybe we can just talk about that, but why do you think that is happening in the culture of lacrosse? What are those factors involved there? It's uh, a great question. I think that the realistic answer is that it's because it happens in many places, you know, for the, for the majority of time in the U S like homophobia was something that was cool, right? Like um, it's kind of the vocabulary of day-to-day -day existence in athletics and in the sport of lacrosse. Right. And especially in athletics too, where masculinity um, and the desire to be strong and manly um, and glorified uh, is so strong. I think that gayness in a lot of ways is like the opposite of that. You know, the way that people use the word gay or other homophobic slurs um, is, is very much explicitly and implicitly opposed to the idea of success that is present in athletics. So there's that, right? There's also the coolness of it. Um, it's just the way people talk and even, even to not partake in that culture of homophobia is seen in many ways as a form of like strong dissent, right? To say, to not use those words or when someone says them to say, hey, like that's not cool, right? Like that is seen as very uncool in a lot of ways. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a big obstacle. Um, and lastly, I mean, I think like <laughs> there's, I, I feel like um, there's a sentiment in lacrosse 
that you know we understand within the lacrosse community that our sport has a problematic reputation at times uh you know the way it's portrayed sometimes in in popular culture and in movies and i think just the things that we hear about lacrosse right the jokes that are made um that a lot of people see the sport as problematic as wealthy as white as elitist as threatening in many ways as having a drinking culture and i think that our reaction within lacrosse is to say well, we're really nice guys, you know, like, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the men's game, especially because that's what I know. Uh, but to say, hey, we're really nice guys. Uh, like if only the world would know, you know, <laughs> what what nice people we were, then, you know, this stereotype wouldn't exist. And I think that, you know, sometimes we have to be a little bit more honest with ourselves and say, hey, like this stereotype potentially exists, you know, for a reason, right? You know, what are the things that are not the best about our culture um, that we need to work on? Uh, and I think that, you know, the drinking culture is one thing. I think that within the men's game, the way that women are treated um, or spoken about is another thing. The homophobia is another thing. The fact that it's a predominantly white sport is another thing. The fact that it's an extremely wealthy sport um, is another that we have to look at. Um, so I love lacrosse. You know, I'm not trying to, to bash it in any sense. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, be realistic um, and say, uh, you know, there, there are issues within lacrosse. Um, that I feel, you know, should be addressed so that this game can be a game for everyone uh, and so that it can honor like the roots of the game, which come from Native Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that the, the lack of willingness to talk about shortcomings within the culture of the sport is another obstacle. So in your article in Lacrosse Magazine, I loved some of the language you used in that. It's so well-written, but um, one of the things that you said was it was the the day that you told the Harvard men's lacrosse team your senior year, you know, before practice or whatever? It was an extraordinary day for you. It was a it was a big moment in your yeah. life. But you also described it as an ordinary day, right? It was just it was another day, right? <laughs> an yeah. extraordinary ordinary day. Why did you choose those words? That that made such an impact on me when I read those. But why why did you choose extraordinary ordinary, right yeah. next to each other? Um. So <laughs> a little bit goes back to, this isn't the book rec that I brought, but you know I would end up talking about it. Um, I think I, I really, a, a book that has really influenced me was um, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf and, and, and other books by Woolf as well. Um, and what I really loved about that book was like her portrayal of just an average day in extraordinary terms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, going through a regular day in your life but feeling blessed and, you know, feeling the grace of the world and feeling the complexity and miraculousness of everyday life. So I had actually used the, that same phrase. And I guess like as a writer, you steal from everyone, like including yourself. I had used that same phrase um, in an article I wrote about Mrs. Dalloway at one point. Um, <laughs> so I, I ripped it off and brought it there because that was sort of, I thought, I think a phrase that summed up, you know, what I wanted from that experience and like was really fortunate to have was, you know, a day that was different from all the days of my life previously in that now everyone around me knew a secret that I had never thought that I would tell them. Uh, but also a day that was ordinary in the greatest sense of the word, because it was a day where we got to play lacrosse together. It was a day where I went to class, you know, it was a day where I like I experienced all the things that you know, we were so lucky to experience as students at Harvard um, and not to be treated any differently or looked at in like a negative way. 
Um, so it was extraordinary and it was ordinary. And I think those two things are very much interrelated. Yeah, I love that. And you also described the, you know, that, that senior year for you was so, there was so much going on. You had the COVID season that that happened later on, but what was it right. about that group of guys, that team, your class that made, yeah. you, that made you telling them that so comforting and supportive for you? What, what was that? Uh, team dynamic like yeah I think you know we were a very close team um and I'm sure that you felt this as well when you were when you were there uh just naturally the team was very close um we spend a lot of time together we go through some stuff together um and I think you know when I was younger I did feel somewhat like a little bit of an outsider in the group at times um because I was a little different in some ways uh as i got older i started to feel a lot more a part of things um and that you know definitely played a role i think i wrote in the article um that like i knew people would see me as noah first and the gay kid second you know and i think that does a little bit speak to the troubling nature of coming out you know if i if i had been an openly gay freshman coming into the program you know, I sometimes wonder what would the reaction to that have been mm -hmm. um, if people would have been on board with that, if it would have taken some time. But, you know, I had been on the team for three years, three and a half years. Um, you know, I felt like I really was tight with a, with a lot of the players. Um, and, yeah, I really wanted them. I really wanted them to just know me in the full scope of who I was. So uh, I was grateful to them for you know their acceptance and their reaction. Awesome. Um, so what thinking back to the article a little bit more and for people who haven't read it I strongly suggest it to check it out because again it's really well written and you know you re reveal an important message in there I think to younger players whether they're involved in lacrosse or involved in athletics it doesn't really matter right it's it's for younger people who are struggling maybe or thinking about their identity and what what that might be like for them what what is your maybe main message or um, what would you tell, say, a middle school lacrosse player who's experiencing something that you experience and what advice would you have for, for them? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing I would say is that whoever you are, you, you should be 100% feeling good about it. You know, I, that was, I phrased that terribly, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, no, I know whoever it is that you are, like, yeah. that's great. You know, in fact, like, rather than just even being okay with it, you should celebrate it. Um, I wish that I had been, you know, more able to come to terms with who I was um, at such a young age. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, you can be whoever you want to be and still play lacrosse. Um, and, um, you know, coming out takes time uh, and everyone's circumstances are different, right? And you have to do it in a way um that is you know healthy for you i wish you know so much that i could have um all of the time that i was in the closet back uh you know i think that it would be you know so fantastic um to be able to relive those years you know within the full scope of myself uh and i think in some ways like my decision to teach is like almost you know trying to like get that back for myself like but through the through other people in some ways you know mm -hmm. at some level um, not that I'm trying to like relive my own life, the lives of students, but just to try and say like, and be a role model and say like, Hey, you can do this. You know, uh, that's the main message is you can do this. Um, and it may be hard at times, but, uh, it'll, it'll get a lot better. 
um, and it'll be worth it. Awesome. It's a great message. Um, it's, it's really important, I think, for people to to feel okay with who they are. And that's really why I wanted to have you on today and why I'm glad you wrote that article is to, you know, express that and be that role model right. for, for younger, right. younger players in lacrosse and just in general. Yeah. Um, you know, I think like um, I was listening to your conversation with Jim Harbaugh and I really loved what the two of you were talking John, about. John. We all, oh my gosh. <laughs> that's his brother. That's his brother. Uh, John, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. You're a soccer um, guy. It's all right. I'm, I am a soccer guy. I don't follow the <laughs> NFL very much. Um, but but what John, you and John were saying, you know, we all kind of look in the mirror, especially when we're young, and we think like, am I to this? Am I to that? Uh, you know, how could I be better? Do people like me? Um, I think that that's like such a a shared experience that so many of us have. Um, and so often like the sense of normalcy or of, you know, being mainstream or being cool or being liked is some abstract ideal that's really not attainable for everyone, you, you know, or for, excuse me, for anyone. Um, like, you know, the, the invisible or imaginary ideal of the cool person or the in person, uh, you know, it just doesn't exist. And, um, we all kind of walk around thinking I'm insufficient in this way or that way, or I don't fit in in this way or that way. Um, and we don't realize that everyone else is thinking the same thing too. You know, so I think that, um, you know, trying to be okay with ourselves and, you know, accepting who we are is just a big part of being human. Uh, so, you know, more than, more than just a queer experience, it, it's really, is it, it, it really is, I think something that we can all, um, think about, you know, how, how can I be okay with myself? Um, and I don't have to live up to the expectations that I am imagining that other people have of me. Yeah, it's an important message, I think. And like I said in that podcast, especially today, because I think there are even more or additional pressures with social media and yeah. um, just how public everything is. And you kind of feel right. maybe like you're being judged on various angles, not just in person, but from from people right. on you know, Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. Right. Um, right. So I think that's yeah, important I mean, social, for kids it's today. Hard. It's hard, you know, it's hard growing up in, in, in this world of social media because, you know, not only do you, are you seeing people, right? Like living idyllic lives in their posts, but you're expected to be the author of similar content as well. Like you are expected to put stuff out there and then you are like evaluated numerically based on how many likes you get. Right. It's very, um, it's very disheartening in a lot of ways. And I think that if you, if you're young, like I still am, um, sometimes you can look at that and say like, wow, this didn't, no one likes me. This didn't get literally no one likes me. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't get enough, enough content or enough likes. Uh, and that's really hard as, as a young person. Yeah. It's important that there are role models, like you said, role models, people to look up to and say, like Noah's okay with this. He's sharing his story, he's sharing his message. Right. And that, that can help younger people. Um, let's talk a little bit about your experience at, at Harvard as a student athlete, but maybe as a student first, who are some of the um, best teachers or professors that you had at Harvard and what was your favorite class you ever took? <laughs> Such a hard question, honestly, because <laughs> I mean, you know, like all of the teachers there are really, really quite good. Um, you know, I remember like, you, you show up freshman year and you're going to these lectures 
and the teachers are just saying things that are blowing your mind and i'm like stumbling out of the lecture hall because the teacher has just like said things that i have never even heard of or thought about that mm -hmm. are totally you know influencing the way i experience reality and life um some of my favorites were definitely the history and literature courses um because those were a little smaller and I, you got to you know get to know people a little bit the teachers were committed to getting to know you and were really just thoughtful people i loved um america in the 1980s with angela allen i loved i took i studied three times with steve beale who is uh in, in history and literature the first time we we did the vietnam war in american culture which was a class that like hugely influenced my understanding of america um, i had never heard about the vietnam war before or learned about it and you know learning about that um conflict totally reshaped my understanding of the u.s in a lot of ways uh then we the next time we studied together was world war one uh the history and literature of world war one uh and then he was my thesis advisor um and we came back to vietnam and i wrote a thesis about um how disabled Vietnam War veterans protested the war and also the American culture of militarism and also, you know, American masculinity. Um, so those were some highlights for me. Excellent. Uh, what led you to your major Histon Lit? Did, was there a specific class that you took that made you want to decide to do that or how did that play out? Um, well, both my classes with Steve and with Angela um, were Histon Lit classes. And I always have been someone who, you know, loves both sides of, you know, that spectrum, the history and the literature, right? You know, you can't really fully understand the literature without um, understanding it in context. And then when you're studying history, like people study history very differently. Um, the way that I'm really interested in studying history is through the voices and the human experiences of the people who lived it, rather than sort of like at a macro level of what events led to other events or trends or things like that. I'm much more interested in like the human experience of history. So literature is that in many respects. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, and then playing a sport, playing lacrosse, I know what that's, what that's like, but reflecting on your own experience as a student athlete, what would you what would you tell someone who's thinking about playing a sport in college, specifically lacrosse? What was it like to be an athlete as well as a student and have to balance all of your extracurriculars and your academics and all the things that you have to carry while being a student athlete in school? What was that experience like for you? I mean, I loved it and it was really hard. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think I, I don't think I understood uh, when I signed up as a 16 year old, um, how hard it was going to be and how challenging, you know, mentally, you know, I was very confident in myself, very much a believer in my ability and in my work ethic. And I think I even remember, you know, looking at the Harvard team and looking at guys who didn't play and almost thinking implicitly in my head, man, like they probably just don't work that hard or something. Like when I get there, like I'm going to work really hard and like, I'll make it, you know, I'll make it happen. Um, and it's way harder than you think it will be. You know, everyone is an extremely hard worker. Everyone is really talented. Everyone was the captain of their high school team. Um, so I didn't imagine that that necessarily would be the case. And when I showed up, I was a little bit blown off my feet 
by how intense the level of competition was and the desire to get better. Um, I also was really committed to my schoolwork and you know, trying to make everything happen uh, and be really good at everything. And that was a big challenge. Um, and I had to learn, you know, some time management a little bit, which I, you know, I actually, I was actually fairly good at, um, but it wasn't so much like the ability to organize a calendar that I needed to learn as the ability to navigate a busy schedule and like still feel okay and like be healthy and be positive and experience things in a positive way. That, that was the skill that I really needed to acquire. And have some time um, for yourself and time to reflect exactly. and slow things down. Because one of the things that, you know, I think about in terms of our college experience was how fast it goes. It's four years, but it flies by because you're so busy. Flies by. I, yeah, I, you're busy. I joke with my roommates all the time that we only had a few occasions where we were kind of just sitting on the couch, hanging out and just enjoying it because yeah. we're, it's always A to B, B to C, you know, practice right. for six hours or whatever. It's a lot of your time if you're going to choose to play a sport in college, but it's, it's really what you sign up for. It's just finding yeah. those, um, finding those moments where you can enjoy it really. I think a hundred percent, you know, um, I think I remember like my sophomore year, there was a time where I was like wake, waking up 7 a.m., you know, and not going to bed till 2 a.m. And everything in between was some form of classwork or like putting some food in me or being at practice and 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 being there. Um, and that was just not sustainable for a 19 year old. You know, I was exhausted. I was drinking coffee. I was unhappy. Um, couldn't wait for the year to be over. Um you know, as much as I hate to say it. So I think if I could go back and do those, do those, especially those first couple of years differently, I'd put a lot less pressure on myself. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and be like the best at everything. You know, sometimes you have to like let things go and pursue what you're interested in a little bit more than, again, like pursuing this ideal that you think other people expect of you, which is to take hard classes, get amazing grades, succeed in lacrosse. You, you, you just can't do everything. Um, and I think, I think I would try and be okay with that yeah. if I could do it again and spend a little more time relaxing. Interesting. And that's, it's also easier said than done, but you know, coming yeah. in, cause there's so many competitive people around you. That's why sometimes I say right. that experience is not for everyone because it, it is mentally taxing because everyone in your peripherals is striving and the hardest worker in the room and super right. competitive and you have to keep up in, in some ways too. So, um. right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I agree. Um, it's, it, it's hard. The other thing I'll say though, is like the challenge of it was really something that helped me a lot. You know, like I think at the end of my sophomore year, I was like, I just had like a little bit of a private moment of reflection where I was thinking this isn't working, you know, especially in lacrosse. Like the way I've been going through our program for the last two years isn't working. Like I was, my freshman year was miserable and, you know, just working myself too hard, the same my sophomore year. Um, and I was like, I haven't given this my best shot yet. You know, like I work hard all the time when we are there, right? Like I don't, I don't doubt myself in terms of working hard in practice and the weight room and like giving my best in those moments. But I haven't taken a moment yet and said like, how can I look at my whole life and like reorganize that? And that's what you have to do as a student athlete, basically, is say, how can I live my whole life around the question, what will make me a better lacrosse player for the Harvard team? 
um, or allow me to contribute to the Harvard team. And I think that like the challenge of looking at it that way and saying, okay, like I'm going to make some big life changes, um, make some sacrifices. Um, what were, what were some of those changes you made or sacrifices you made after sophomore year? Well, I think like, you know, socially, like (laughs) I'm a person who's like, just not as naturally gifted and athletic as a lot of, as a lot of other people. Right. There were, there were people on our team even who could live a vibrant social life and still be extraordinarily quick and explosive and fast and flexible. And if you literally, if you see me run for 30 seconds, you'll be like, no, it's not that person. You know, <laughs> he's a grinder. He's got to grind and um, sacrificing a little bit of, of that socially, uh, you know, changing my diet up, um, sleeping more. I got a whoop. Oh, that's, thing. that's helpful. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a reminder. It's just like, it's just like, it's just like sort of changing the question. I think we all kind of make our decisions. You know, this is a little theory of mine. We all kind of make our decisions based on questions, you know, like, when we go through life, we're like, we have an implicit question or an implicit value that's present in everything. Um, and I think that like, I had to change up my question a little bit. Like my question had to become, is this the best decision for me to be, you know, the best teammate and lacrosse player I can be. Um, so when it came to like eating, you know, the question had to go from, is this what I want to eat? Will it be delicious to, is this the best thing for me to be, you know, the best member of the Harvard lacrosse team? Uh, and you can amplify that across the board to sleep, you know, to academic, unfortunately, sometimes to academic work, even, you know, I think that lacrosse and a lot of college sports have become so professionalized that uh, unless you are an extraordinarily exceptional person, and I can think of a few, Rob Shaw, if you're listening, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> unless you are on an extraordinary level, it's very difficult to fully give yourself to both programs at the same time. Um, so, you know, I still, I'm a teacher, I love academics in school. Um, but I did feel at the time that though I needed to take my foot off the gas a little bit. So I stopped studying computer science, for example, um, cause it was a really demanding program and, um, you know, I wasn't going to do it as my major. It was my secondary, it was my minor. I didn't think that it would, you know, have career implications for me. Um, so I stopped doing that and, and, uh, and that helped me a little bit. Yep, I had the same experience with computer science. It was too too many hours. I was yeah. up too too many nights at three a.m. It just was not sustainable at all. Right. Um, yeah. So it's hard. I mean, it's hard to like prioritize like that as a young person. Another thing that, that being a student athlete teaches you though is like, what's really important to me? Right. Uh, what's really important to me? A lot of skills you take from that experience. Um, yeah. So Noah, w- w- let's talk about your book recommendation. What book do you have for us? What should we pick up and why? All right. So I'm bringing in the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, I read this book uh, in my last semester at Harvard uh, while I was home in New York City during the spring of 2020 in quarantine. You know, season had just ended, was a little despondent, didn't know what to do with myself. Um, And, uh, you know, this book was an option to read um, in, uh, in one of my classes in Cornell West's African-American studies class. Um, So I picked up this book and, you know, I didn't really know much about Malcolm X. I think that it was an extremely impactful book for me. Um, You know, the book is really very much about history. It's about studying history, in my opinion. Um, You know, if anyone doesn't know the story of Malcolm X, you know, he was an extremely bright, 
young student who was enrolled in an all-white school when he was young and his experience of black history in that school was the teacher reading one paragraph from the textbook about slavery making a racist joke everyone laughing and that was it and that was his experience of learning black history when he was young and then as he got older right became a hustler went through his phase of sort of hustling and drugs in boston and harlem and then he went to prison and it was actually in prison that he embarked uh, on this extraordinary journey of self-education where he would read books all night as he discovered the nation of Islam, read books about history and about science and about the world, you know, all day and all night in his cell, reading late into the night, you know, through a sliver of light through the cracks of his cell door, reading so late that he developed the need for glasses as an adult, which I think is fairly rare, you know, because um, he was straining his eyes to read all this information. Uh, and it was it was this journey of sort of self-education um, that made him into uh, the advocate for racial equality that he became. You know, he kind of just looked at the history of America and of the world in general and saw this history of exploitation and evil and racism. Uh, and he was a believer that you could share this truth with people and that it would impact them and change how they understood and looked at the world. Um, I brought a quote, which I think is an incredible you know, humanistic quote, which sums up in many ways who Malcolm X was. Uh, I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who it is for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost. And as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole, right? An incredible egalitarian mindset based on truth and based on studying history. Um, so I really you know, valued the book and, uh, you know, think that Malcolm X was an incredible figure, someone with incredible levels of integrity and drive and truth telling ability. Um, and he, he certainly, his, his, his words certainly influenced my teaching in this first year. Um, have and, you've uh, incorporated yeah. him in, into your class? Have you, um, done some study of this book in your class and what's that been like? We didn't read the book. Uh, it's it's a long book, and uh, I'm actually going to try and ask our history department if we can have it be the summer reading book for next year for U.S. Because again, you know, I think it's a book about studying history, right? If you're a young person today studying history, so much of the process of of studying it is saying like a lot of the things that I've been taught are that are true about the U.S. are not true, and I have to go through this process of unlearning and kind of relearning the truth a little bit. Uh, and I think that that was the journey that Malcolm X experienced. Um, we didn't do we didn't do the autobiography. We did some other speeches of his when we looked at the civil rights movement. Uh, and during the during the a week of the election in the fall, we read a little bit from the Ballad of the Bullet. Um, as is as that sort his of his most you know, famous speech is the Battle of the Bullet. Yeah, the Ballad or the Bullet. The Ballad um, of the Bullet. And I think, I think you know. <laughs> Malcolm X has like this reputation in popular culture of being like the foil to King, right? If King advocated for nonviolent resistance, then Malcolm X advocated for violent resistance. And I think like almost the title of the speech, the ballot or the bullet, like reinforces that idea of who Malcolm X was. Um, and uh, I think broadly speaking, it's kind of an oversimplification or not true. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, I was glad that, uh, we got to look at him a little bit more in depth 
um, in our class together. And my students, like to their you know credit, were, were very curious about um, Malcolm X and about Black Power. Uh, we had um, we had a professor come speak, Dr. Brenna Win Greer. Uh, spoke at Milton and she spoke about like the oversimplification of Martin Luther King and popular culture and the oversimplification of the black freedom struggle. And she talked about how in her education, including at a PhD program in African-American studies, she never received a lesson on Malcolm X or on the black Panthers or on black power. So primed with this talk, uh, I asked my students, I said, what do you want to learn about the civil rights movement? And most of them said, we want to learn about Malcolm X. We want to learn about Black Power and the Black Panther Party. And I said, yes, let's do it. Um, so we didn't have, you know, regrettably, you only have you, you, the amount of time you have. And I'm sure you know this as a teacher is like so limited, but we got to spend some time on, on Malcolm X and on reading Stokely Carmichael and reading the Black Panther Party 10 point program. Um, and I mean, again, you know, again, those texts for me were, were uh, a big learning experience as well. Awesome. Noah, Noah Kanaf, huge reader. Uh, we talk book <laughs> recommendations all the time. Noah, anything else we should cover today? Um, how, how was your lesson on Evelyn? So it went really well. I'm glad we had the conversation about that beforehand. And there's so much that, and this is my favorite part about teaching, is we had that conversation. I've read that story before, but my yeah. senior students were picking out aspects of the story that I had not even thought about or noticed in my reading or our conversation. And I think I didn't think that going into teaching that like, what's a 16 year old going to tell me about the great Gatsby, for instance, that I've read 10 times. Right. And every year I learned so much more about that text yes. or about any given reading <laughs> or story. So that's, that's my favorite part, but I'm glad we, yeah. uh, we talked about that beforehand. So I was, right. I was prepared I, for yeah. class. I got to tell you, I, I, I found the same thing, you know, going in, you always hear teachers say like, you know, it's really the students who teach me. And it, it's a, like a cliche. And as a student, I was like, really? Like that's, that's, that doesn't seem right. Like I'm a student. I know I'm not teaching you anything. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as a teacher, I've been like so blown away by my students and um, what they bring to the text and what they bring to class. Honestly, the things they say blow me away. And I am, I have, I, I do feel as though I have learned so much more from them than they have from me. Um, so I, I hate to be, you know, parroting the old cliche, but I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Noah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was an awesome conversation. Um, great role model, great friend, and uh, I appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Catch up again soon. Yeah.